welcome back to Keeping Track. We had a great episode today with Lauren Fleshman, and we are here with Alicia and Ro. Some exciting catch-ups and announcements. Uh, Alicia, we'll start with you. Welcome back. Woo, woo. Yes. I mean, we've been in and out. It's been a minute. I was supposed to be doing a Keeping Track episode live at TRE. Missed it because I got one of those wild infections that everybody was getting, RSV, laryngitis, all mixed together, a little bit of strep. Hey, just hit me with it. They're doozies. <laughs> all the doozies. So I'm really excited to be back and happy new year to everyone. Yeah. Um, biggest catch-ups for us, for me, um, we have a lot that's been happening with Ann Mother. So, you know, uh, I we were able to bring um, lactation stations to several major sporting events, which was huge for us at Ann Mother. Um, all by way of helping demonstrate workplace changes that are needed to support moms in their career and in their motherhood. So um, we are far underway with that. And with that came a lot of growth. So at Mother, we have huge opportunities and we're hiring for several different roles, which is really exciting. We're going to be moving into an office space, which is huge for me, um, in the beginning of February from one of our partners that will announce when it happens. Um and yeah, that's just going to be huge because of all of the big things that we have going on. And my house is about to be exploded uh, today. And my entire family is going to be living in, in uh, 200 square feet, which is totally doable. People do it all the time. But five of us, it's going to be an interesting situation. And I don't think this meeting would happen the same with, you know, Aster and Lennox and Linnea all ready to dive in. So anyways, excited for all those things. And what about you, Ro? It's been a minute. Hey, Tessa, I'm like, whoa, I just like digested everything you just said. And you're <laughs> always moving the needle and just always on the go. I love it. And then I think I'm busy and I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> not in your comparison. Um, but yeah, I'm back in the US of A and um, I've been in Ireland for like nearly five months. So I haven't been on a, on a pod in a while either. Um, but it was great when I was there. I was doing a lot of my Olympic school program in Dare to Believe. I got actually asked to join the International Olympic Committee Education Committee. That was pretty cool. I was in Switzerland a couple of times for that. Um, and now we're back in good old Rhode Island, snowing. The snow is finally coming down. And yeah, I've become an American citizen this week, actually. <laughs> Welcome. So I'm have a hot dog and a hamburger on Friday. And uh... oh goodness! <laughs> Congratulations, American. Maybe some, maybe some uh, barbecue while I'm at it. But uh, yeah, so all good. Awesome. Well, congrats. That's so cool. And Molly, hello, Miss like rocking it, running your first postpartum half marathon, and qualifying for the Olympic trials. Yeah, I'm just realizing how much, out, but I'm excited about that. Tell us about you. <laughs> so much has happened in the last few months, you guys. I didn't realize. Um, yeah, I've been kind of doing small races leading up to Houston half and Houston half. I was going to go for the 72 flat Olympic trials qualify qualifier. Um, and it went a little faster than I was planning at 70 flat. So that was always encouraging to be kind of back in the ballpark of my, um, like more competitive times. So that was a good result. And, uh, yeah, we're just planning from there, like more races and more um, like the next marathon, really. So Yay. that's and awesome. What big else? Announcements. And yeah, yeah, those are huge. What else? What else? What else? What else did we miss? Um, family life. Uh, how old's little one? Of course, we just want to know those things. Hello. Tell us about baby. 
Jojo is nine months old. Um, grateful for the lactation stations, Alicia, because I still am breastfeeding her. So like, you know, Houston half, I had to pump twice in the middle of the night. Um, I had to, you know, find a way to pump at uh, Boston half marathon a few weeks ago. I just used the dope anti-doping tent because <laughs> they, they didn't quite have a setup there. So yeah. plenty of races to add that stuff to. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she's yeah. just growing a lot. So those race, hey. races need to get on the on mother train. Yeah, my antennas just went. What? Why is she in? Okay, hey, that's fine. We'll we'll solve well, that. Well, you know what I was thinking when I was in there? It's it's easier for an elite athlete because we have so much. Um, we're treated so well. We have so much space. We have, but for the masses, they need those places. They need the lactation Absolutely. tent. You know, they don't have the bus taking them right to the start line and an extra hour before the race to do whatever they need to do. So. Yeah. Did yeah. they have like walls for you if you wanted it at the at the anti-doping tent? They did. Yeah. I just took over the whole time. Like, but that's like my privileged position to be like, Hey, like I need to use your tent. Like they were like, okay, you can do it. But you know, would anyone else be able to do that? Probably not. So definitely much needed those lactation spaces in the world. Uh, okay. Well, I'm already got my antennas out and my feelers out about who to connect with. Obviously going to do a double down, uh, conversation with you on that experience. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, okay. Let's dive into it. We had Fleshman yeah. yeah. launching her book, Good for a Girl. And since then, what's the news that we found out about her book? NYT bestseller. Bestseller. Top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list. That is mainstream. Okay. That is huge accomplishment. Yeah. Our see, girl you did it. Cool we are? You see how cool we are? Keeping mm. track. We got a New York Times bestseller on our podcast, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running mm. in a Man's World by Lauren Fleshman. You should check it out. Uh, not just because it's New York Times bestseller, because it's really that good that it's New York Times bestseller. Um, from our podcast, what did you guys take away from that podcast with Lauren? I I, I, I mean, I could think we could have talked for three hours to her. Totally. I think, Alicia, we all have different relationships with Lauren. We've all known her for a long time. And there's so many different angles that we could discuss and dive deeper with her. She's so thoughtful. And um, her book covers so many issues, I think. It's just really exciting to kind of have that time with her. Um, anything that you guys can think of that you were wanting? I had a thought, and I, I wanted to ask each of you this. We didn't have time, though. Um, I feel like Lauren kind of is looking back at her career and at the sports system with um, a perspective that is affected by all the change and all the things that we're aware of now. And she sees things that were sort of hurting women in sport, hurting her career. And I kind of did the same thing. And it was like, it made me wonder, do you ladies look back and have any memories or anecdotes of times where maybe after reading the book, you're like, oh, that actually was one example of the way, you know, what Lauren was talking about in the book, how the sport just wasn't really, you know, running with women in mind or was running kind of against the woman, the female experience. I mean, first of all, I want just our listeners to know that little clicketing sound is is baby Jojo playing with some some blocks. So just enjoy the sounds of wonderful luxury. Face. Um, I think one of the things that's top of mind for me right now, and this is not in the same regard when we talk about, you know, girls in sports in in, um, you know, a direct capacity. But it talks about the longevity for women in sports. Girls, you know, become women. Um, And it's kind of, it's what I'm fighting right now with Anne Mother. And just when we think about equal, you know, or equity, you know, in sports and what that access looks like and how we can see ourselves 
uh, growing in the sport. And, you know, when we think about all the things that come with, um, can come with womanhood, it's, you know, you're for us, you know, equity and puberty isn't like, uh, you know, more testosterone. Well, I mean, of course our hormones change, but in the way that it is for like a boy to a man and, you know, puberty for us equals lots of bodily changes that, you know, you have to grow with, and there are going to be some ebbs and flows with it. Some happen a little bit later for some people, some happen, you know, in a really quick and seamless way. And some have a really hard time with it, but like, you know, we're meant to kind of grow into it. Um, and then from that, you know, can be motherhood. It can be how we experience the world in sports. If we are to think through, um, all the ways that we could evolve and, you know, what I'm diving into now with, uh, with Ann mother is really started from the very beginning of how we saw equity in sports. And it starts with our girls and it grew into how we are, have not been able to even fight for barriers for if your career were to extend as you became a mom, um, within the sport and for our, our men, you know, that, that's not a barrier for them. They just kind of do yeah. sports and it, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah. So that's kind of what I think about right now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, in the sport, so. yeah. Like it's more holistic to look at women's sports and that with those, with those things in mind, rather than just performance, right. That mm-hmm. it's all about how fast you run and your value is based on that. And I think broadening that definition of value and broadening you know, the definition of like only performance above everything is important Mm -hmm. because, you know, that lens is one way of looking at it for so long. And I think the work you've been doing, Alicia, and changing the game for all women in sports and across sports Mm -hmm. is, is just blown that out of the water now. And thank God it will never go back, hopefully. Um, And I think that was so needed um, because that was my personal experience. I think when I was pregnant. I was like, oh, am I going to get paid? I'm not going to get paid. And it was like, I don't know. It's up to these guys up in the office. <laughs> and it was just, you know, that's just a, a kind of scary way to live. Um, and yeah, I just, it's it's just great to know that things have changed thanks to your work, Alicia. <laughs> so, oh, thank um, you. I mean, it's the collective work of our stories, though, that and people willing to tell it that are really helping us, you know, change the game. Um, and Molly, what about yours? What do you well, what was that you specifically were thinking of? Well, it had me think back on my career, even you know, high school and NCAA all the way back, and think, did I have a good experience? You know, like is this just the story we tell ourselves, the empowerment side, the sports are amazing side, and yeah. do we gloss over these other pieces that are maybe damaging in some way? And I do mm-hmm. think I'm lucky enough, just by virtue of like who I aligned myself with and who my role models were, that I did have a net good empowering healthy experience but definitely wasn't without some things that like through the lens of the book I'm like oh right I saw that too you know like so many times I feel like in college it was like um trying to be you know what I didn't realize was the mold that suited more of the male athletes and then to me it was like well just don't be weak you're being weak if you miss a season if you get a bone injury if you cry in your coach's office it's weak and it's like well those are just things that are actually inherent to some of the more female experience uh not to stereotype but like it is part of the female experience to have you know unfortunately like peaks and valleys when you do go through uh like puberty or peaks and valleys you know maybe with injuries related to just growing fast or 
and the different phases of when your period, your menstrual cycle. And to me, I was like, well, just don't be weak. Cause that's kind of the way it was phrased. Like that was kind of just the imprint on me. And it was like, okay, you're just being like a a female bodied athlete. Like that's not necessarily weakness. So thinking back on those things kind of helped me. It did connect the dots a little bit uh, after reading Lauren's, you know, Lauren's take on everything. And um, I think that'll be really interesting for a lot of women to be like, oh, like it's okay to point out these flaws in the sport and in the system. It's not saying that sports are bad for women. It's not saying, you know, that you weren't having a good, having good experiences with the bad, but there's definitely room for improvement to serve women athletes better. So I think that comes across. Yeah. I think we can look at both of those things at the same time that the, it it is like a a great um, thing for kids to get involved in and take people out of like social circumstances and climb, help them climb out of things and connect them with their body and, and grow in their brain and community and global community of like athletes and sport, what sport can do for people. But there is, it's okay to also say there's some things that need to be cleaned up and there's a shadow to some of that striving um, and when it all costs kind of lens. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's okay. I think it's healthy to say that the two of those things can coexist are both true, true, you know? Right. So, and having us just identify, you know, things that are harmful towards the growth of sport and how, you know, women, girls and women are included within sport. Um, and, you know, just to kind of, on, on one other thought that I was thinking was just even like, you know, the girl with the flower in, their ha- in her hair, you know, that just that girl's mentality of the storyline of how I'm asserting my strength. And it still, even in that lens, lends itself to showing men and boys that I am strong, you know, like, it's like, that's how much it's deeply ingrained and like, I have to prove who I am gets to be strong and fast. And I'm going to do a, wear a flower in my hair because I'm doing sports. And this is like a boys and a man's thing, but I'm a girl and I'm here and I'm doing it. There's so much that mm-hmm. like gets folded into how we assert ourselves. And like what we're doing now as women is we're going back and we're saying, you don't, you get to just be you. You don't have to outright show everyone that you are a girl in sports. You're just a girl in sports. You know, you're a woman in sports and we deserve to be able to belong here in a way where our, what we need helps us move forward, move the needle forward in terms of like how we're able to grow, climb a ladder. Our trajectory for growth is one that isn't where we're thinking of ourselves of, uh, the subset of a male, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I think Lauren refers to that a bit a couple of times in the book about like how many times she like abandoned who she really was in order to try and fit the mold. And I think that's what you're saying there. Like, you don't have to do that. We don't yeah. have to abandon yourself to fit into sports, you know, come as you are, you know? Yeah. Um, so everyone, there's a lot to, we can tell you you know, in and out exactly what this book is about. But guess what? You have to go read it and, you know, add to just the amazing numbers and reviews that Lauren has been getting about her book, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. Um, yeah. yeah, get the book. Go I'm get it. The book up just so you guys know and nobody can see this. So. I, I kind of want to read it again and do a book club if anyone wants to join me. <laughs> hey, there's so much it. in there. There's so much in there. We should do a um, keeping track book club for this book. <laughs> Absolutely. And well, I, and I hope that, books, yeah. yeah, and I do hope that there's an uprising of like people supporting Lauren and the kind of ideas she has to like change the game and it, it keep evolving it. And um, we will keep people posted on how they can do that if we hear of anything. So 
Absolutely. Doing it. <laughs> awesome. Well, everyone go out, get the book. Good for a girl, a woman running in a man's world. New York Times bestseller. My wow. love. Thank you so much. Keep for keeping I just want to get started with just an introduction for who we have on the podcast today. Everyone We've got myself, Alicia Montano, Molly Huddle and Rasheen McGettigan and a special guest with us today. Who do we got, Molly? We have Lauren Fleshman. Um, Lauren is here to talk about her recent book, part memoir, part manifesto, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. For those of you that don't know Lauren from the running world, um, Lauren was seventh in the world at the 2011 World Championships in the 5,000, multi-time NCAA champion, um, US champion on the track, and also has done so many things off the track. I can't even name them all, but just to give you guys some background, she is a writer of this book and of articles. Um, she had a great website, Ask Lauren Fleshman. She has done some really cool, um, like influential work at Wazelle and at Nike in the marketing department when she was there with them. And she's a mom of two and she has some entrepreneurial uh, forays that have gone really well, like with Believe I Am Training Journal, which she co-wrote with Roisin and with Picky Bars. So I could go on and on, but that's just the cliff notes on Lauren and I'll let her tell you the rest. Right. Oh, that's it. That's that's everything. We could, we could dive. <laughs> everything. In. I say let's dive into the book. And yes, like, yes. I want to hear your experiences and I want to hear your yeah. thoughts. And, and well, Lauren, yeah, I'm you're excited. a wonderful writer um, as all of the things that Molly had listed. And I, first of all, just literally cannot believe this is the first time that you're on our podcast. So thank you for <laughs> on keeping track um, and for helping us just kind of dive into your book. Good for a girl that's out now, a woman running in a man's world. Um, so I think one of the things that we kind of were chatting about a little bit earlier was just my blurb that I put, my very verbose blurb that <laughs> I put, um, you know, I shared with you and that's on the cover of your book. And I just wanted to kind of read that blurb and kind of just dive into just that very beginning part of that. Um, the blurb reads, this book breaks open the door for cage conversations to protect the health and integrity of growing athletes. It not only needs to be in the hands of women identifying athletes, but also their peers, coaches, and parents. It is an invitation to have a long overdue conversation for long overdue cultural shift. And I, I obviously really believe that. I mean, as a mom to a daughter, but also to two boys, these are not just women issues. And we talk about this all the time. These are not just girl issues. These are societal issues. And I know we can't keep talking about these issues that women faced in all areas in like an echo chamber, but something that you'd mentioned is that these were conversations that you weren't even having with your peers. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that um, it was like part of just the internal landscape of all of us trying to navigate the space. You're in a competitive environment, but you're also in a cooperative environment and figure, and you're young. So figuring out where like where your achievement and drive should be placed and how you you naturally are comparing yourself to the people around you. And also this huge power dynamic of you and your coach where your coach, especially in the collegiate system, but in high school too, like they're like a parent. Um, they're a parent without the response, the true responsibility of your well-being. They're a parent in the sense that they can control you and where you go and when you go and how much you do what you do. And um, the opportunities you have, um, if you get to travel to conference or not, you know, stuff like that, where there's a lot on the line that it, it's not a, an environment set up for freedom of conversation, of 
like it, like it's natural to have a lot of those emotions and tough questions just sit inside you and think you need to figure it out. And, uh, and, and that creates like a distance between us, I think. Mm -hmm. Performance is like a big central piece of going to college and being under a coach. Right. So, you know, this idea of your value comes from your performance and how people could internalize that somehow. And, you know, then that can be quite damaging if their if their value isn't seen in their performance, you know, and yeah, well, I think you went towards those kind of issues or these insecurities that a lot of athletes have in a way that was very relatable. And, and now I think with time passing and maturity and science and everything, um, you can kind of give a better understanding to those experiences. And I really like appreciated that combo of your own lived experience with the, you know, slow to kind of get, get there research that's coming out around um, all the issues that you named. Yeah, I think that like there, for a long time, since even the like pushing feminism, pushing to have Title IX passed, there's been this argument of like, we want access to sports, but sports is bad for women. And in order to get access to sports, we had to debunk this other branch of people that were like, but sports is bad for women. And and when we when we just kind of uniformly say, no, it's not in order to get what we want. But like there are some actual nuggets of truth in there that sport as the way it's currently presented or at, at, in the environments, the way they're currently built does harm women. And, um, and so, but now it's 50 years post title nine. And while I don't want to say no one's going to take it away. I mean, look what happened with Roe v. Wade, right? Like anything can happen, but it seems unlikely they're going to reverse title nine. Um, and so I feel safe enough going, okay, we, we do need to actually like look at the harm in the ways that, that this title nine isn't fulfilling its promise. Um, and, actively dismantle those things that are causing the harm so title nine can fulfill its promise in a female-bodied specific way for this category of sport there's so much research about you know why sports are good for people and young women and more and more there's there's more kind of language around that there's more research around that every day we hear that and yet at the same time you're kind of saying although it's good for you there's still problems and like hate this expression but it, it's like don't throw the baby out with the bath water like you're like let's look at the bath water it needs to go things need to change but let's yes. keep the baby right let's keep the yeah. good stuff and let's like really recognize that there's some stuff that's dirty and murky and we need to look at it absolutely mm -hmm. and there's still people reading my book who don't come from a sports background who have interviewed me they're like are you saying that we, we shouldn't do that competitive sport is bad like maybe we should just stop being competitive I'm like, no, it isn't that. I'm saying that we need to, there is a way forward where we can care about pushing our bodies and we can compete. We can strive for our potential and we can prioritize health. And that just might look different for female-bodied people than male-bodied people through development. Mm -hmm. I love that you say that because I have heard, um, I've had conversations with some people who are you know, in the area of trying to fix women's sports, fix girls' sports, and they sort of made it sound like any kind of high- level competition any type of peak performance like world championship level is inherently unhealthy and we don't necessarily think that's true but mm -hmm. um you mentioned you know you've had good influences in your life like coach DeLong who helped you bring that joy to the competition rather than erase the competition so I think that was such a valuable like delineation near the end of the book there's a scene at the 2011 world championships where I had my best world championships global performance and I was I was compete. I was competing to be the best in the world. Like that's what I wanted to do, and I was experiencing joy and presence and risk taking. And like, 
I wanted to bring that moment to life to show that those things aren't at odds with each other. It's not like you either have to be just doing it for fun or killing yourself and destroying your mental and physical health. Yeah, absolutely. It's so clear. Just kind of what you're getting at is it's something wrong with the system, you know, Mm -hmm. and the system that has been built for men, for boys. And it's, you know, in your introduction, you dive right into it. I don't want to name a bunch of things within the book because you guys have to go buy it. You have to go get it, but it's so true. It's same thing that we're fighting with, with our nonprofit and mother. It's like the standards and professional athletes contracts are written for men. You know, they're completely leaving out protection for athletes. If they, let's say, I don't know, get pregnant, have a child, yeah, have a miscarriage, have a hard time getting pregnant and need to go through fertility treatments. I mean, the list mm-hmm. goes on about the ways that this male standard is harmful to women and girls in sports. And um, yeah, we made the mistake of like copy pasting. Absolutely. Like we just thought you could copy paste. And of course we're way more similar than we are different. Right. So that works for a lot of things. And, 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 and as angry as I am about the harm caused in sport, I also feel like optimistic. It's only been 50 years. It takes time to be able to see the impact of the way we've built a system on the people inside it. The question is like, okay, now that we have some data, are we willing to relook at it? Do we value female bodied experiences and health and thriving? Like what, what is our goal equal thriving? Then we need to create a different space for female athletes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that part that you're talking about in your book, where you talk about like the promise, you know, it's like, you can be anything. And you're like, wait, can we be anything? Um, part of me wants to mention this more than anything because of just the ringers from Frank Fleshman in this book. <laughs> But the other part is what we're talking about is like anything, what is anything, you know? Um, and just, you know, for you guys, um, Frank Fleshman is Lauren's dad and um, he's amazing. He's so awesome, but he's also the first person that kind of gave you an introduction towards the difference between boys and girls um, as it pertains mm-hmm. to bodies changing and puberty and probably yeah. your use of the word balls um, and how yep, that's hot and cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I learned to kind of see the world through his eyes and he's yeah. a, he's a great character for the book. There was like a struggle at times with my editor in the early parts of writing this book to be like, why is your dad's story in there? What is, what's the point of having this storyline? And it was hard for me to articulate when the book was still a hot mess. Cause I was like, I know this just seems like a bunch of scenes and they don't seem related. And yes, this is only my dad. And this actually maybe makes it less relatable to more people because I have this very specific childhood with, a volatile alcoholic person, but also my biggest fan. But I think that like, I, I, in the end, I wanted him to have a very vibrant character because there's a couple of reasons. Like these forces don't just exist in society. They can exist in the home. They exist in all of our homes. They exist in all of our marriages, like in subtle ways that we're still dismantling. Um, and, um, and they also like the person that can love you the most or the, the places where you can feel the most joy and safety can also be the places that cause harm. And that can be in a family system and that can be in a sports system. And I think the love for my dad is so clear in the book, despite that complexity, despite the fact that he could he could support me and harm me. And that's so clear to the reader that those two things are happening the whole time in the book, but that I can you can hold that complexity and still feel still honor the relationship and it, like, we don't have to be perfect. And I'm not trying to make the sports system perfect. I'm just saying like, let's really look at the good and bad. Like our true well being is going, it is not gonna come from me not looking at any of the bad stuff my dad did, right? Like that's one thing that my sister and I did try to do for a while was just minimize all the bad stuff, focus on the good stuff. 
and that's what we're doing in sport. Toxic positivity, but go ahead. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed um, like sport, we've spoken of sport as originally built by men for men. And so um, my dad is, was really into running and I felt like you almost have some currency as a female athlete in the eyes of like your dad or other, um, you know, most of the leaders in the sport are men. And if you're a woman who's good at it, I felt like it was almost like looking back now, I'm like, that was almost like a currency, like a social currency that I was good at sports. And that's something they value. Whereas if I was good at ballet, equally as good, they might've just been like, I probably am not going to be as into it. And think, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you and your dad had yeah. kind of a dynamic. Oh, yeah. But that's, that's that's like a, a proximity to power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really yeah. like those undercurrents in white supremacy and like all these different structural problems that, that we have is that you, if you are good at a thing that is valued by the people in power, then you will have proximity to power. You will get praise. You will you. And, and then what we know about neuroscience is that children like take the things that give them positive feedback and they invest more deeply in those things. Mm-hmm. And so we're more likely in this stage of feminism to have more women kind of like angling towards male ways of doing things while we're still trying to get a foothold in those spaces. Mm -hmm. I very much agree. Yeah. I think that's maybe sort of as we get more women in charge and coaching and higher up in the sport, I'm hoping that feels different and you feel like it's easier to change things. Yeah. Just think about the difference it makes if you have a black woman in the sports marketing room, making the decisions on who gets to be a professional athlete. I mean, it's complete, like which events get invested in, which people get invested in, what the marketing campaigns look like, like it, it, it shifts every single thing. And like the world that we came up in, in sports marketing was like, I don't know, 99% white, straight white man, probably. And what is it now? Like 92? I (laughs) I haven't been to the running event in a while, but the last time I was there, like 12 years ago or something, it was completely that. I mean, I I don't don't want to like erase like incredible women like Martha Garcia and like at when she was at Hoka and like, um, you know, Sally Bergeson, Oazel and Sarah Lesko and stuff, but they're definitely still very much in the minority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned that you mentioned somebody in the book, one of the sprinters, a top sprinter at the time is like, you know, how, what your, your bar is called picky bars and how you've really fought for your value and which is important. But at the same time, there was this conversation that was had with the sprinter about uh, mostly white athletes getting paid well over just to kind of for their potential, like well over the mm-hmm. amount of anybody else just for their potential. And while black athletes, you know, it had to be like, it's either like win or starve that whole yeah. component. And I think like there's a lot in our data set in sports and how we think through what we get um, based on who is closer to the proximity of power and how people view them and how people see them. Um, and it goes, you know, the trickle down effect. It's like, you know, white men, then it's like, yeah. Women. And then, it, you know, there's like it's men in general, it's in, you know, so there's so many different tiers to that effect, but at the same time with what Molly's mentioning in terms of like your influences within the book, there are the influence for you seem to have been like, in your beginnings, at least, much more uh, prevalent to have like a male figure as somebody who you look towards for validation in sport. Big time. Yeah, because they were the ones that had the power. And mm-hmm. in the like that messaging of the girl power revolution, if you can do anything and like just look at who's doing what you want to do and find role models, right? Like that's like a huge thing people tell you, find role models. Well, it's pretty tough to find 
a lot of female role models in a lot of these spaces. And, and it, it doesn't take much calculus in your child brain to go, okay, well, who's winning? What does power look like? Mm -hmm. What behaviors are they doing? What steps did they take? I need to do those. Um, and you're not consciously trying to embody like sexism and racism and all these things. You're just, you're just looking at the pattern of what it took and then you get on the path of what it took. And we do this in a micro way with, with our training, even like you can be like, who's, who's got the world record in my event? What are they doing? And it, it, you may not choose to do every single thing they do. Um, but we're curious. We want to know, like, what are they doing that led them to be the absolute best and to have that power and, and whatnot. So I did, I, it meant more to me to get a compliment from a man than to get a compliment from a woman. And that's sad. Like, it's so sad to me now. <laughs> and and I do feel product that, of your yeah. environment, you know, if the mm -hmm. society is, you know, is that's what you, you were swimming in all the time. You're going to yeah. like, that's what's going to create, you know, that's, you're internalized it in some ways unconsciously. So yeah, and it's still here. Like I'm probably in the next decade, I'm going to go through menopause. Probably some of you are, will be knocking on that door too. And currently you talk to women in their fifties who have gone through menopause and they're like, we are completely invisible. Like I, I talked to the, another mother runner podcast and they're like, we could walk, we could be naked in a basketball gym watching these high schoolers play. And no one would even blink. Like we are that invisible in culture. Once you get past mm -hmm. a certain age as a woman. And so if you like, it's, it's still bad. Like, if you think about that, like if, if we are going to be the, of that age, like, are we amplifying the voices of women in their fifties and sixties? Like, are we still like, how is it still living inside us? Even as we mm -hmm. outgrow certain parts of it. Well, that's why it's also so exhausting for women and people in marginalized groups is because the only one that's fighting for you is you, you know? Um, and something I just really wanted to bring up on that subject is like those who are on the bench or off the bench like what are they doing right like what are the things that they are doing right that we can continue to like share as way of an example you know and this is not to you know make this you know we're going to do all the work to tell you guys what to do but at the same time I do want to give people just an example of like for instance coach long what was it that he did that really has you so close to him bringing like to this day, you know, when you think about your greatest accomplishments in sports and how you're able to recalibrate your way of thinking when things started to get really murky and you were falling mm -hmm. into the of, you know, of eating disorders or all these things that make us hate ourselves as women and as girls, what did he do well? I think that um, he did a good job of of like painting the big picture for me. He was the first person that was like, you can do this for a long time and there's no replacement for consistency. And the only way to be consistent is to stay healthy. And so, and he made decisions daily, weekly, monthly, where he prioritized my health mm -hmm. and, um, and didn't want to, like we trained hard, but he didn't overtrain me. And he openly talked about programs that did like way, way more. And he questioned those. And so I could see that he valued health and the big picture perspective. And even though he did, he was one of the first people that implanted this idea of like losing weight can make you faster, which is not helpful, really. Like that's a very dangerous, tricky territory to be talking to an adolescent girl about. But then he also on the same hand was like, but eating disorders, if you get an eating disorder, you will um, experience like injuries, like you will sacrifice the the thing that helps way more than anything else, which is consistency, being healthy over many years. And it, and he stuck with me for a long time. Like the, the, I think 
characters like that in the book can show you how powerful a few words can be for better or for worse. Like you can be an influence on an athlete's life that gives them resilience as they come up against these other forces in the world. And it can last for a while, but eventually those forces got to me too. And you get far enough away from the good for the good voices and, and you're vulnerable. I mean, we're always vulnerable. And so I think like there's a certain amount of like, we can do, we can make changes individuals. I hope the book helps parents and coaches and medical professionals see the power of their words and think more mindfully about the female body experience. Um, but there's also a limit to what we can do as individuals. And at a certain, at a certain point, we have to create structural change and best practices and policies just to make sure we're taking individual agency out of it. Like I think about it should not be up to an individual coach to decide when an athlete is sick enough with an eating disorder to get them help. Mm-hmm. Why the hell is that a coach's job? Mm-hmm. That should be a policy. It's like, it's not a coach's job anymore to decide when a concussion is bad enough to throw mm-hmm. an athlete back on the field. Like there is a mm-hmm. policy based on research that is anchored in athlete health and well-being, and they just have to follow that. Yeah. And the athletes themselves aren't even going to be the best people to make those decisions yeah. a lot of times, right? Especially when they're not unwell, you know, when they are unwell, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love your solution. I love, you know, how you compared it to the head injuries you see in football and the concussions and stuff. I think, I think I love that. I love that you came in with a solution as well. You know, you're seeing like what, what is happening in other areas around like that are equivalent to this um mm-hmm. but different and yeah like holding that up and saying actually here's a concrete thing that could be done mm-hmm. we are capable of it mm-hmm. That's like we're, we have to just decide you have to decide that the pain matters if you we we have an easier time deciding that male pain matters and yes women get concussions too but it was started in football it was started in a male sport and concern about the violence that emerges self-harm mm-hmm. and, and harming others from these head injuries Mm -hmm. and we decided male pain mattered and then we did things about it hard people worked really hard for like a decade to make something happen do Mm -hmm. we feel the same about primarily female pain like the majority of people suffering here are female pain and we're suffering from pain that is expected of us culturally outside of sport which is that we should always be dieting we should always be striving to have a body worth looking at and you know and so like Mm -hmm. that's where i get a little bit i'm worried because we do have an example in concussions, but it's all hinging on, do we care about female Mm. pain? Do we care about female thriving? You labeled it in the book as um, predictable landmines, things like negative body image and eating disorders in sport. And I like how you say that because it is something we've seen over and over again, but there's been kind of like a little bit of eye rolling almost, or just like dismissing it as not a serious problem or um, it happens often enough that we're obviously not addressing it. It's obviously taking so many girls out of the sport before they're before they should be leaving or before you'd like to see them leave. So um, I think that is the root. Yeah. And outside of, outside of opioid addiction, it's the biggest killer of women. Um, and, of and, a mental health disorder. And I think like, their reaction is like, oh, again, we see it. Oh, this again. And it's like, well, when do we actually do something about <laughs> like something that will fix it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the blame and is on like the, the athletes or, you know, yeah. young yeah. minds or, you know, yeah. whoever, yeah. you know. Um, and that's where the people in charge, like the systems in place, like you're saying, like that's where the diversity matters. That's where the woman's voice at those NCAA policy making, whatever happens at those events. Like, that's where you need people there advocating for women's health and women's pain. And, you know, if that isn't happening, which we do, I don't know what the steps are on those um, bodies or commissions or whatever they are, but like, you know, if that's missing, then no one's going to be there advocating for the change to happen. 
So, yeah. yeah. Well, I have a question for you because I had this idea and I briefly mentioned it in the book, but all of you were recruited athletes. You were going through a period of your life where you were assessing programs and trying to decide where the best place was for you. Right. And I think about like a typical um, way to factor that we're all influenced by is like the ranking of a program. Like how good are they? What's their national ranking? How do they compete with other schools? Will I be on a winning team? Will I be on a, you know, will I be the only person who's um, traveling to conference or will I have a squad? Um, and so we look at national ranking and that's obviously based on like one factor, performance, podiums, right? And and then it got me thinking about, could we create a different ranking system for colleges based on what we want to value in women's sports during this critical age where these changes are happening? Like, could we could we somehow, like they do with US News and World Report and they decide the best colleges period? Like that's based on just like a few categories someone decided, we're gonna measure this, this, and this, and then we're gonna put them in a formula and that's how we're gonna make this list. Like we could do injury rates, we could do, do people like their exit interviews of how much they enjoy their sport when they exit versus when they came in. We could we could do like what would you put on that list Graduation, of things? Yeah. Graduation rates or you know injuries, anything. Oh, what else would that's the question for us? Yeah, what my question you? is like if well, I guess would uh do you think a, like a, a list like that could like a different ranking system for female athletes in programs and male athletes could use this too. Like I think it's great for everybody. Would that have been influential to you? And if, if, and what would it take? Like, what factors would it take to make it the most useful for as many female athletes to have to be able to like accurately choose environments where they're more likely to thrive and still love running? Yeah. I mean, th the question for me is quite difficult because um, I now I need to think through it because I feel like I did walk into college like, yeah, I want to do theater. <laughs> <laughs> they run fast here. So that's cool. Check mark. Um, but looking back, man, yeah, that's such a interesting thought. Like what would I have wanted to see if I were to just have dialed it in the way that I was able to kind of like choose. Count. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think that the time that we were in school, sport culture in general was different. Like, I feel like yeah. the things you saw held up and like valued were people like Lance Armstrong, people like people who were like, I'll do any, like, it was cool to do anything to win. So it was almost like if you entered a program where people were like kind of hurt or unhappy, at least I was kind of like, well, is this just intensity? Like, are they just not able to handle it? Like, I feel like mm, we're at a place yeah, now. Yeah, I remember that. We're at a place now where it's like, no, like, um, you know, empowerment and health is what you take out of the sport. And this is what makes good um, sustainable performances. Like, I think we're just evolved a little bit as sports culture. So Molly of 15 or 20 years ago might not have even like thought of that question. But now, obviously, mm -hmm. it was key to, you know, staying alive in the sport. I so coming from Ireland, like there's this like kind of idea that, oh, if you go to America, you'll get over raced and they'll just just put you out and make you a race every weekend blah 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 so by choosing going to Providence College like I knew they had a reputation Ray had a reputation of coaching like post collegiate uh, collegiate athletes and developing Olympians and that was really like since sounded really like caring mm -hmm. and also like sensible you know like even yeah you're, you're only 18 you're like you have a clue like how the sport works yeah you know you, you do have a clue of like what's too much and like so hearing that and and seeing sometimes the progression of some 
a member ratio and it's a sheet of the athletes like their progression over the years and it was like wow that's amazing she came in at this and and there's like a lot of people who made the huge and that was really like inspiring to me and then um also yeah just I think um those two those two things made it like factored in for sure but like obviously that was coming from abroad and everything and still not knowing everything about the system or anything like that but how know, great that, that you made that. that choice, like that you were thinking about that. You were thinking in a DeLong like way with about <laughs> college, like how can I come out of this and still have a future? Yeah. What were you going to yeah. say, Alicia? I think that's the part. It's the influence of who, you know, you have going into college. And yeah, now we're thinking about it and we see all the problems that are happening. I also think we didn't have a lot of, you know, factors that get, are so convoluted now. There's so much advice on social media that isn't real advice of what people need to do to be good athletes. And when I was choosing a college, I really was like, I want to enjoy this experience for all of that it has to offer. So like, I know I was being silly in the beginning of, of like how I chose, but it was really like, I want to be um, a part of the theater department that is thriving and has a good reputation. I also want to be a part of a team where I can see everybody enjoys each other. It seemed to be a healthy team. What did my head, what did the head coach value in, you know, mm -hmm. how he saw the athletes, he, he, Tony Sandoval really valued, um, you know, how the athletes were whole from a mental component, um, things that he didn't want to touch or talk mm -hmm. about, um, could be things that could be helpful having women coaches. He really did strive towards having at least a, a woman coach to chat through some other issues. And what I saw was a downfall is when we would have coaches come in that wanted to do things like body scans. And that didn't, is not how we started, you know, but it would be women coaches that would start things like that, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, you know, I know that our men coaches take a lot of fall for that, but sometimes there are women that come mm -hmm. in, and add to those components of programs. And I think that influence that you have going into it, young listeners, um, that influence that you have that keeps you grounded as to like who you are, us all being individually different on purpose, us all heading towards our no our North Stars. You know, you talked about Lauren, what DeLong cared about is like mental wellness is what you should be looking forward in, into a program. You shouldn't have a singular um, idea of your identity anyway on just being about sports. It's like all the things that sports yeah. makes you feel is- yeah that brain component, that brain pain. But, um, you know, so with that said, I just wanted to say, like, I love everything that we were able to talk about from, you know, our influence, what we could be doing, some of the people who have, you know, helped switch it up for our listeners. Lauren, can you help us understand as we close out, you know, who are some people who have helped switch it up? And what is it that our listeners can do to kind of help us move forward? Like switch it up, you mean like who's doing, who's helping move things in a good direction right now? Yeah, who's helping move things in a good direction for young women uh, and girls in sports in, you know, a way that we can continue to carry that and move it into a space that we need it to be in? Oh, well, I mean, this is like a all-star team right here. Let's just talk about this crew and the books that we've written and the, like, the heart we've poured into articles, interviews. Like, I feel that we are an example of of a generation of athletes um, who who are deeply caring about leaving the sport better than we found it. And I think that that we're modeling for the younger generation of up and coming athletes that that's part of what it means to be a professional. That it's you have a responsibility um, to to your community and to to like paving the way for health. And people are watching. You know, people are watching you succeed, and they need to know that they need to know like. Um, 
you can't you can't paint a pretty little curated picture because it actually is causes harm. Like people will use that to to create expectations that are unreasonable for the young. Yeah, I think that's good. And then I think like Trent Stellingworth, Kirstie Elliott Sale, um, Dr. Kate Ackerman, Dr. Gums before all three of those names, um, Dr. Sarah Lesko with Bras for Girls. There's people out there who are doing a lot of research. They're furthering um, the the research gap that that causes a lot of these problems. And they're like beating the drum of we need to be talking about periods. We need to be talking about breasts, like all of these uh, taboo topics, invisible topics that are tough to talk about. If you just say the word period enough times, people are gonna finally get comfortable with it. And um, and that's the, those things make a difference. Yeah. Uh, I think that like there's some great, there was an article, was it in Women's Running or Runner's World about the coaches that have taken a stand against body composition testing Yep. And I think like there, there are some really great coaches who are, who are taking a stand, prioritizing female health and not being afraid to like, like be making themselves available for interviews. Like that's another thing. They're busy enough. And they're like, no, this is not just important for my program. I want to make sure I'm modeling this for other coaches. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, that is so interesting. Just talking about the body cop. So, so it doesn't matter by the way, <laughs> that's the big thing. It doesn't matter. I mean, the first time I ever did like a pinch test, I was at the Olympic training center and we did it one time and I was like, so what does that tell me about anything? Oh, I have skin. Yeah. Moving on. Uh <laughs> oh my God. Like when they were doing body fat pinch tests on 16 and 17 year olds at the Olympic training center, I'm like, what the hell were these people thinking? You are like, I, I used this example recently with someone where if, if you looked at like, if you determined who got to have a singing career based on how they were singing at age 14, there would be no male professional singers because their voices are changing at that exact time. Right. And so like, like you, you would never do that. Yeah. It wouldn't make any sense, but we're, we're looking at changing the changing bodies of female athletes when they're supposed to be getting softer. We're, we're supposed to be doing that. It is essential that we allow that to happen for a period of time to let those changes happen. And we're pinching them right then. Like we're like, Hey, right now get in this bod pod. Ooh, now yeah. you should look at how you compare on this chart to 28 year old Olympians. I mean, how stupid is that? It's so, so stupid. Everyone that's listening, say no to body comp, say no to anybody pinching your body for any reason. It's just an absolutely not. There's nothing that it's doing for you. So we're going to start there. Any coaches or parents are listening. If you hear that, this is something that is your athlete is going through, you can immediately put the kibosh on that and let them know that this is not helpful. Yeah. Put it here first. So uh, everyone, thank you so much for coming on to Keeping Track. We really appreciate you just listening. You heard it here from Lauren. What you can do to help switch it up is listen to our podcast more frequently. Hell yeah. Um, no, just kidding. You can go out and get- By how she did it. <laughs> yeah, by how she did it. Support, um, you know- all of our advocacy work within the women's uh, sports department. We've got Women's Sports Foundation. We have Ann Mother. We have so many amazing people that are helping us uh, really have our eyes and ears on making a change for girls and women in sport. So thank you so much, Lauren. Um, and from on behalf of Keeping Track, we love being able to hang out with you and keep track. Well, this has been a real treat. Thanks for making the time and um, keep up the good work. Love y'all. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Keep track, 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 yeah, yeah, keep track, keep track, one time, one, yeah, 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 yeah,
track.
Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.